Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Woodfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And as part of that, in this series, I'll be speaking with some of Scotland's leading authorities on the impact of COVID-19. The conversations are with fellows and with members of the RSE's Post-COVID Futures Commission, who are keen to share their expertise and experience. You can find out more about this work at rscovidcommission.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at news underscore RSE. Today I'm speaking with Caroline Gardner about how we can use learning from the COVID-19 pandemic to support inclusive public services and innovative thinking. Caroline was the Auditor General for Scotland between 2012 and 2020 during a period of significant growth in Scotland's financial powers and has a passion for evidence-led change to deliver better outcomes. Caroline is a member of the RSE's Post-COVID Futures Commission and chairs its working group on inclusive public service. She also sits on the expert panel supporting the independent review of adult social care by Scottish Government. So I'm really looking forward to her insights on how we use the experience of COVID to support positive change. Caroline, you've often highlighted through your previous work how innovation is much needed, but is often under supported when we look at the public sector and maybe particularly in the NHS and, and social care. Based on your experience over the years, how do you think we best foster innovative thinking within these sectors and, and across public services more widely? I think it's a really important question, Rebecca. Um, we all know how much health and care is struggling, not just because of the impact of the pandemic at the moment, um, but in the years running up to, to this year, increasing pressure on accident and emergency, on social care, particularly for older people. Um, and yet, at the same time, as Auditor General at Audit Scotland, we saw great examples of people working differently, um, finding ways not just to make better use of the resources they had, but really to support better the people they were there to serve. Um, and I've thought a lot about why it is so hard to um, take those, those sort of bright sparks of where it's working well and, and grow them. I think one of the challenges is that um, our systems haven't kept up really with the way society has changed since the NHS was established 70 years ago. Um, that we now all live much longer, more of us are living with a combination of long-term conditions that can't be straightforwardly cured, um, more women work outside the home and aren't able, to, able and willing to provide that sort of long-term care in the way perhaps they did in previous generations. And yet our system is still based around an idea that you go into a hospital, you're cured and you go home again. Um, so I think there's something really important about, um, first of all, having that conversation much more widely about what all of us want and need from health and care for the future, um, and then thinking about which bits of the system get in the way of that. My personal view, for example, is that targets around waiting times are a really unhelpful way of focusing in on a much bigger, more complex system. They're one window on it that um, actually makes things harder in the rest of the system. And then when we do find those bright spots of people really making a difference, that we put lots of effort into supporting them, um, to learning from it, um, and to making sure that the systems aren't making their jobs harder. There's not one magic wand, but I think that real discipline to focusing on what matters now and for the future would make a difference. 
I mean, that sounds really interesting, Caroline, the point about actually the the systems haven't kept up with that sort of wider societal change. Um, I I mean, you said that those conversations need to be happening about what sort of what what we want longer term. Um, How how might those conversations take place and, and whose responsibility is it almost to sort of instigate them, if anybody's? There obviously is a role for government, um, and I think government's done a great job through, for example, the National Performance Framework in setting that longer-term conversation, the direction of travel, um, explaining why it matters. Um, I think then there is a disconnect in the way we talk about individual public services, that the Cabinet Secretary for Health is held to account not for achieving that sort of change, um, but instead for how long people are waiting for inpatient care or an outpatient appointment. And then there's a job for people working across health and care right across the country, all levels, all stages of their careers, um, obviously for institutions like the Royal Society of Edinburgh, and that's why I'm excited to be part of the post-COVID commission. Um, but also for all of us, this isn't something we can do to people. We've all got an attachment to the hospital where our kids were born or our dad died, We have to be talking about why we can actually be providing not just a different, but a better service in future. Um, And I think, as I say, we've all got a role to play in that. I mean, one of the more positive outcomes of COVID, if I can put it in that way, without wishing to um, sort of negate the you know horrendous consequences of, of the pandemic, but has been the creativity we've seen across the public, private and third sector of services have sort of pivoted or changed what they do and how they do it in response to public need in the change context. Um, is there anything that particularly sort of surprised you in, in that response, you know, given your experiences Auditor General? Was it what you might have expected or, or was it different in any way? First of all, I think it's been amazing if you look at the speed at which things like the Louisa Jordan Hospital were set up, the way in which we were able to get um, free school, free free meals to children during school holidays across Scotland, um, and, and um, now particularly the very rapid development of vaccines that are much more effective than anyone could have expected. It just shows we can do it. And I think for me, there's something about taking that spirit of being able to make rapid change at scale um, and thinking about how we apply that to the the problems we all know we were facing before the pandemic came along um, around health and care, around education, around inequality more generally and applying the same um, the same commitment and the same focus on what really matters that we've seen over the last nine months. I, mean, I think that's a really important point, is it? I mean, how do you ensure that creativity um, and that culture of change is sustained um, and that we don't have a reversion to, to normal, you know, once there's a vaccine in place, we don't just go back to business as usual. I mean, how can we sustain a, a culture of change and creativity? It clearly isn't easy. And I think the people I talk to are torn between, on the one hand, um, sort of longing to get back to normal, in inverted commas, the way things used to be. And on the other hand, recognising that the pandemic has shone quite a harsh light on some of the things we've been living with for too long now. Um, I think in Scotland, um, the government from the, the from the beginning of the pandemic has done a good job of focusing not just on um, restarting public services, business as usual, but on renewing them. And I think keeping the energy and the attention on that as, as we start to move into the next phase of the pandemic with vaccine rollout will be really important. Um, I, I think 
um, looking for those people who have made really rapid and transformative changes during that period and looking at how we support them and also listening to the voices of people in communities around Scotland who've shown for themselves what they can do, people who didn't wait for the council or the health board to come along um, and help them to support their neighbours or to um, put in place really good early warning systems if somebody was feeling ill so they could self-isolate. We've seen how much energy and um, enthusiasm and, and real uh, uh, genius, really, for, for doing the right thing in the moment is out there. I think that should be a wake-up call for all of us in public services to be thinking about how much we're doing is helping that and how much maybe it's getting in the way. I mean, that seems to take us back to actually some of the debates that happened many years ago, I think, about a more assets-based approach where looking actually at the at the potential and the capacity and capability, for example, within communities, rather than uh, communities having problems that required other people people to solve. Do you think there's any anything we can take from that sort of approaches in the past to sort of inform the future? Yeah, I mean, I think that thinking is really exciting. And I think it's exactly the right way forward. I think the problem was that it was always a bit disconnected from from public service as usual, what people were doing day to day in hospitals and GP surgeries and schools around the country. And for me, there's something about really stepping back and and joining all of that up. Um, I think... Too often, public services require people who need support at a particular point in their lives, and actually that's all of us, to show what they lack before they're entitled to services. Do you have too little money? Do you have too little physical capability? Are you unable to cope with your mental health the moment rather than thinking what's the matter with you we should be thinking what matters to you what is it that we can do to help what's the next thing that would make a difference and I think there's there's something really important about trying to build that much more positive and supportive culture right across public services not as a one-off top-down thing but really as a bottom-up grassroots issue um, that is led by the people we're all here to serve that's much easier to say than to do. But I think it is a sort of turning on its head of some of the ways that um, civil servants, particularly, I would say, approach policymaking. For reasons I understand, it tends to be quite silo-driven. It tends to be about what we can do to demonstrate results in three to five years' time. And actually, lots of the problems we're facing need a much more joined-up approach and a much more long-term approach that accepts that things are going to fail from time to time, and we need to learn from that and move on. I mean, that that point about the public services and that and sort of acceptance that things need to fail, that's quite a difficult one in a, in a, a sort of public service culture, isn't it? When you're spending public money and obviously there's a wish to spend that money well. I mean, not often a risk averse culture has been seen as one of the barriers to, to innovation in the public sector. I mean, what's your reflections on that? And, and what do you think we might do to be able to sort of get an understanding that uh, that risk is, is something that needs to be thought about and managed, but not necessarily always avoided? I think you've just put it in exactly the right way, Rebecca. We can't avoid risk. There's risk to everything we do and everything we don't do. Not acting has got risks as well, but we don't see those. Um, I was really struck by the independent care review that was published at the beginning of this year, um, which was um, really calling on all of us not to become um, less risk averse, but to be be broader in our understanding of risks. Um, They were talking particularly about looked after children and the way in which children are often wrapped around by services which don't really fit their needs, don't help them to thrive, because we're thinking about risk in a very narrow way. Whereas actually the risk to those children would probably be much less if they were supported to think about what's important to them, what the options really are longer term, how do they 
um, progress smoothly into school, from school into further on higher educational work. That broader thinking about risk, I think, is just as applicable if we're thinking about older people um, and the risks they face from staying at home or moving into a care home. And um, public services more generally, that broadening of risk is really important. I also do think we need to grow up a bit um, as auditors, as civil servants, as people in Parliament and as a society in recognising that sometimes things do go wrong. There's no question about that. Um, what I tried to um, foster when I was Auditor General was a thinking about whether people had approached things reasonably. Had you thought about what might go wrong? Had you thought about what the impact of that would be, how you could mitigate it? And if you had signs that things weren't going as planned, what did you do about it? Did you plough on regardless, throwing good money after bad? Or did you step back and say, what can we do to um, to pull this back and to move it into a better direction? That's the sort of conversation we should be having, not a finger wagging, something went wrong, who's to blame, which, which really does stifle the sort of innovation we desperately need. I mean, that maturity strikes me, of, of maturity of thought and conversation strikes me as something that's really important in, in stimulating and supporting change. I mean, I remember when I was in government, sometimes when pilots were done, um, sometimes it was seen often by other civil servants as a slower rollout of something rather than you're testing something, you're then evaluating whether it works and then you're making a decision what you do on, on the back of that. But there is that challenge of actually how do you get that public understanding and acceptability of risk, particularly as I say, when, when we're spending sort of constrained public public finances, that actually things will fail. How, how do you think we can do better at, at supporting that maturity uh, and understanding with the public? First of all, I think we don't actually do very much of that at all. I think um, for understandable reasons, given the way our media works and the news cycle, every new announcement has to be a sort of blockbuster of how we're going to solve a problem rather than a thing we're going to try and experiment with and here's how we'll know if it's working. Um, and um, I think Parliament particularly has got a role to play in that in um, opposition parties recognising that if they were in power, they, they wouldn't have a magic wand either. They'd be facing all of the same sorts of really intractable problems and challenges um, that don't have a quick fix. Um, actually, I think it might be one of the good things that have come out of this um, terrible experience of the pandemic, that I think everybody is more aware now that we're weighing up risks and looking at how you um, balance releasing restrictions in one area to um, allow more freedoms, but running the risk of more infections or of infections among different groups. I think that that sense that this is a big, complex world that none of us fully understands and none of us can fully understand means that good risk management, um, good risk taking um, it's a skill that everybody is recognising more and that we should be able to talk about and to involve people in, in discussions, debates about what it is that matters most to them and how we can um, get something which as a society we can live with more happily than where we've been in the past. I think the thing I find sometimes is missing from sometimes the risk debate as well is that there are risks attached to doing things as normal and as, as usual. And those might be bigger risks over time if, for example, action isn't taken to tackle something because of a fear that it might not work out or might not be as effective as wishful. I, I think that's exactly right. The, the best example I can see of that is the, the health service, the National Health Service, and particularly the acute part of that. Um, last time I reported on the NHS in Scotland, we were spending something like 42% of the entire Scottish budget on the health service. Um, it's been protected in real terms where most other, other parts of the budget have seen real terms cuts. Um, 
it is struggling to keep up with the demographic change um, that we're seeing across the country. And every pound we spend on the NHS, spend on the NHS is money we're not spending on education and early years and growing the economy and developing communities. Now, there is a, a, a big conversation to have about what matters to us as a country, but that's the conversation we need to be having. And as you say, the, the risk of spending more and more on the NHS, and in my view, spending it on systems which we know are increasingly not fit for purpose, is that we can't do the other things that would make us a more resilient, more equal, more flourishing country for the longer term. So we talked a little bit about risks there and actually things that stop innovation and change. But as you say, we've seen some absolutely fantastic examples of change and creativity and doing things differently over the course of the pandemic. Are there any particular examples you would point to that where you've really been struck by change, you know, whether it's uh, local local change on the ground or something at a more national? What are the things you're seeing at the moment that maybe excites you a bit about the potential that we have as a society and as a country to to do things differently for better outcomes? There's so many we could pick from, both of us, I'm sure. I'll pull out two. One, a, a big national organisation, um, NHS 24, that I think has responded brilliantly um, in terms of um, its uh, its um, accessibility to all five million of us across Scotland and its links into the NHS, both acute hospitals, emergency services and GP services, um, the way that it has developed its website so there's really clear information available um, and its um, telephone services so that people can get the advice and the information they need to make their own decisions and referrals when they need to be. Um, And for me, that's built on the, the changes they've made over the last few years in really thinking about how they can be that linchpin across health and care, um, which is a first point of access, but which is really tailored to what's available for me where I live and for what's best for me. Um, And I hope that we can find ways of building on that for the future, because I think it's a great example of using technology in a really positive way to make it more personal rather than less personal. Um, The other examples I'd highlighted, two very um, local ones here in Edinburgh where I live. Um, The first is the um, Water of Leith Conservation Trust, Um, which I think has done a great job um, when it had to stop sending out volunteers to maintain that really critical sort of waterway through the heart of the city. Um, It's gradually built that up because volunteers get something from it, as well as maintaining a space that's been important to all of us in our hour of daily exercise back when lockdown was at its tightest. Um, But they've also really been encouraging um, people uh, who were volunteering and now can't just to pop into the visitor centre in Slateford if they need a chat and a cup of tea. Um, quite a, a simple thing, but a way of just maintaining those those connections using the resources they have got, the base they've got down there in Slateford, um, and really building the sense of how important um, the Water of Leith is as, as an asset for everybody who lives in Edinburgh, um, and a sense that all of us have got a stake in keeping it available. I also think North Edinburgh Arts have done a great job in, in quite similar ways of building on um, a, a community infrastructure that was there and opening it up by, by listening to people, hearing what matters to them, um, thinking about how they can um, provide a real space or a virtual space for people to meet or to find a friendly ear when they're struggling um, and, and building on that in ways that are absolutely um, locally based and reflecting what people need and what they can offer in their own area of the city. Both fantastic examples in my view. And I think also both examples that just show that innovation doesn't have to be something, you know, all singing, all dancing, that's sort of, you know, radically about using technology different and and sort of widespread change, actually relatively simple things that can be done that can still be transformative. 
I think that's exactly right. Um, and I think also there's a real lesson for all of us as public servants that, that our job isn't to be coming up with the answer. It's to be supporting people to do that for themselves, for their individual lives, for their families, for their neighbourhoods. And then saying, how can we um, make sure that our public services, the service that we provide, is supporting that rather than making it more difficult? Because I think too often they can make it more difficult and that, that shouldn't be what, what it, where any of us want to be. And you talked earlier, and I guess from the, from the examples you've just given as well, the two local ones, is there is a lot of change. There's a lot of, a lot of positive things happening on, on the ground at a relatively local level. But that whole challenge about, well, how do we scale up and learn from those nuggets of whether you want to call them best practice or good practice or, or whatever? Actually, how do we do that? Um, I mean, you mentioned, began to mention this earlier. Actually, how do we get that learning culture and how do we spread the learning? I'm really ambivalent about that word scale up. Um, I think that it's... It, it, and I think people don't often actively mean it, but it holds the sense that you find a thing that works and you then make sure that it works everywhere, either as lots of little copies or as one big copy of it. And I don't think that works. I think you have to start where you are in each part of Scotland. Um, what is it that would make a difference? What can people bring themselves? What's the history of public services and buildings and green spaces and the rest of it? Um, I think what you can scale up is that culture we were just talking about, the culture that starts off by saying, what is it that matters to you? How can we help? What's the next thing that would make a difference that looks at the way we can take the resources we've currently got and maybe use them differently? We know money is going to be tight for the foreseeable future. Um, but we have other sorts of resources. We've got lots of professionals and people who work in public services who really want to do things differently. I've, I've talked to them across my career, I'm sure you have, people who are frustrated by the way they, they have to fit into a system or they feel they have to, rather than being able to help the people who, who they sit, sit with every day. Um, I think we could be doing more with digital in positive ways, like the things that NHS 24 is starting to do. Um, and I think we could be thinking about what are the, the assets to use the, the term you've used earlier, that communities themselves have got that we can help to leverage, um, whether it is the park, particularly relevant at the moment, or a building that's not used to the full, um, or a network which is already in place that may be ready and, and willing to, do, to take on new responsibilities to do more. Those sorts of more flexible resources, I think, are the way that we're going to scale the approach without scaling a particular service. That's a, that's a very fair point. I'm giving away my background as a civil servant in, in, my, in my terminology. But that does raise, I think, a really interesting question, though, as well about how you balance the local and the national. So obviously, one of the challenges, I think, for, for people in government is that if things are doing at quite a localised level, that whole notion of a postcode lottery, that what's available in one place is not available in another place. I mean, how, how do you balance that sort of more being more bespoke and responsive to local communities with, with a need to make sure that there's some, some degree of... Um, um, I, I guess, service that's delivered at a national level that everyone is entitled to or everyone gets? I think that's a really tricky question. And I don't think it's giving any secrets away to say that on the independent review of adult social care that you mentioned in the introduction, that's one of the tricky things we're thinking about. Um, my view is that... Um, First of all, when any of us stop to think of it, we don't actually think we all want exactly the same thing from public services wherever we are in Scotland. Um, if I live in Orkney or in Westeros, what I expect from the health service is very different from what I expect if I live in central Edinburgh or the middle of Glasgow. And we all know that. So there's something um, more nuanced, which is already there to build on. Um, 
I do think there probably are some things that we should be paying more attention to, to sort of standardising, to, to put it in that way. Um, and I think that a lot of that to me is to do with that fairness and equality thing. Um, I think the fact that um, people providing public services um, in different parts of Scotland um, can be paid very different amounts and have very different terms and conditions, very different levels of security isn't right and isn't fair and leads to the sort of variation we don't want to see. Um, I think if I was a social care worker being paid um, the minimum wage um, with 15-minute visiting slots and not being paid for travelling time between clients, it's really hard to see how as the best one in the world I could be building a relationship with the people I care for and providing them the best support that I could. Um, so I think there is something about saying how do we level up those sorts of um, really foundational um, building blocks of public services. Um, but, but I think increasingly, I, I believe that if we get that right, what we should then be doing is trusting people to do the right thing and to be accountable for doing that in a positive and constructive way. I mean, a lot of what you're saying does seem to be about trusting people, whether as, as sort of um, as individuals ourselves or, or, as, or as workers in, in communities. Um, I mean, I'm really struck by your distinction between sort of asking somebody what, what's the matter with you as opposed to what matters to you. I think that's a, a really neat distinction. And, and I, I, sh I suspect that ties with the inclusive public service theme um, around active citizenship. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what active citizenship means for you and where again there might be good examples that that you could point to yeah i mean i should start by saying that that distinction between what's the matter with you and what matters to you comes from um, an international futures forum project in fife looking at really transfer transformative um changes to the way health and social care work which is absolutely starting to show its value not just in how people feel about it although that's clearly massively important but also in the way traditional health and care services are being used um, and and i think that um that whole approach to um changing the culture across public services to the first question you ask being not do you fit our eligibility criteria but let's start to understand each other to build a relationship to know what matters to you what what you want what it is you're looking for from me what I can do to help but also what else is available to you um, is, is the way into that um, that that starts to build active citizens directly. Um, we know that the Curriculum for Excellence was intended to be developing young people who've got that sense of um, responsibility and agency in their lives that they can, they can um, take forward for the longer term. Um, I think it's behind um, some big uh, government initiatives like the National Performance Framework, the Community Empowerment Act, um, the approaches to a number of public services. What we're not doing, though, is joining the dots between those aspirations and strategies and what public servants across the country spend their lives doing every day. And I think a lot of that is because of the um, way in which we then um, uh, default back to tired old metrics like waiting times um, and attainment in narrow terms in school um, and um, sort of lack the courage to, to hold our nerve and say no that we know this will take five and ten years and a generation to have an impact but this is how we know that it's either on track or that it's not and that when it's not we make a change um, I, I think also we've got some hard thinking to do about the third sector in the wake of the pandemic. There are some brilliant third sector organisations that do exactly this. They tend often to be smaller and local and to be very um, vulnerable to 
um, shifts in their funding or to changes in their circumstances, and we're not good at supporting them compared to the um, the biggest third sector organisations, which have got very good because they've had to at fitting into a sort of a, a traditional commissioning culture, um, and that I think can um, tend to veer closer to the problems with traditional public services rather than the energy and innovation and flexibility that you get from the best third sector services. So uh, there's an issue there that I'm still grappling with. No, I mean, it's, again, the sort of creativity we've seen in the in the third sector and often very small organisations has, has been phenomenal. But I know there has been a concern about, you know, very insecure funding that sort of hand to mouth from year to year that sort of maybe um, frustrates some of the longer term change that some of those organisations would be able to deliver and, and wish to see. I mean, you're talking there about the sort of the, the sort of, I guess, outputs, outcomes sort of crunched question. And, and obviously, when the national performance framework was being developed, I mean, part of the drive was to try and move towards a more outcomes based approach in terms of looking at sort of what we're seeking to achieve but we still have this sort of slight obsession with counting things and you know it'd be interesting to see what we see in the manifestos when they're published in terms of commitments to whether it's number of police officers or hours of learning delivered or, or whatever where do you think we are on that journey at the moment as a country sort of to moving towards a sort of more outcomes based approach I feel frustrated we haven't made more. I think the National Performance Framework, what, 13 years ago now, was genuinely groundbreaking, not just in the UK, but globally, loads of interest in it. Um, and I think it, it, as a framework, it's developed really well as Scotland has changed and, and as our environment has changed, particularly the question of the climate. So I think that's something we can be proud of. But um, when I looked as Auditor General at the sort of plumbing or the wiring beneath that, at the way money was flowing, the way people's effort was flowing, the, the way the things that we were paying attention um, to was changing, you're absolutely right. We were still counting how many police officers are there, how long are people waiting for an elective operation or for a hip replacement or something, um, how many teachers have we got across Scotland. Those, those, those things we need to know, but they shouldn't be the measures that we're all focusing on. Um, in terms of how are we doing, are we on the right track or do we need to trim our course a wee bit? Um, I think the government um, tiptoed closer to, to addressing that when they asked Sir Harry Burns to review the waiting targets in um, the NHS. Um, and Harry was very clear that they weren't helping with the sorts of changes that we all need to see that are part of government policy. Um, but it's been so difficult politically to actually take that step of saying that's not our main measure anymore. Um, I, again, I think we're facing a moment of change in the wake of the pandemic. And I wonder if there's room for... Um, all the political parties to think again about actually what what is their ambition for Scotland, their vision for Scotland, and what's needed to make a reality of, of that. Um, and it's something that all of us, professionals, people working in public services, members of the Royal Society, our fellows, all need to be um, prepared to speak up about, I think. It can be uncomfortable, but it's what we're here for. And at the risk of maybe having a stereotype view, view of auditors, but I imagine as Auditor General and the sort of culture you were trying to or you were developing there is it's quite tricky, though, isn't it? I mean, it's much harder to to measure outcomes than it is to actually say whether the number of police officers has been delivered or the number of teachers or whatever. Um, so how as auditors do you get that sort of um, ensure the accountability, be able to scrutinise when you've got outcomes which are maybe a little bit more fuzzier than those sort of hard numbers and targets? 
the first thing to say is that your just job is always easier than the job of the people trying to deliver public services and to change them in the ways we're talking about and I'm under no illusions about that at all. Um, I'd, I'd say two things. First of all, um, what we were looking for again was show a few workings. Um, we do know that these changes aren't going to happen overnight and that you still need to know how many police officers you've got, how long people are waiting, but how are you planning to, to show that your own policies are having the effect that you want them to, that there aren't unintended consequences, that you can afford to um, fund them over the, the years ahead. Um, if you can't show me that, then it's very hard for me to have the confidence that you've done the thinking that's needed to, to manage something as complex and, import and important as this. We also tried, though, to use our sort of convening power um, to be helpful directly. So on outcomes, um, we produced a short guide for um, public servants about um, what a, a, a well-implemented outcomes approach looks like, um, drawing on good examples we've seen here, some great examples around the justice service um, coming out of the Scottish Government that hadn't been learnt from widely, um, but also drawing from global examples in the US and particularly in New Zealand. Um, and we tried to bring people together to, to to sort of open up that round table um, format so that people could sit in a safe space and learn from each other um, without feeling that um, it was risky to be owning up to problems or to not getting it or to being frustrated by the fact your partners in the health board weren't prepared to give up any of their intensive care funding or whatever it was. So auditors can help, but we can only be a part of the solution. But it comes back again, I think, to what you were saying earlier about the need for mature conversation and open conversation where people can say things that are, are challenging. I think it also maybe points to some of the creativity in the third sector. I mean, I uh, sort of the, some of the work of evaluation supports Scotland around outcomes and how we use them, again, being quite thoughtful. I, I think certainly I found quite helpful in, in sort of working working this through. I mean, one of your, your mantras seems to be, you know, a, a real commitment and a passion to involving people and, and sort of not doing things to them and I mean have you got any sort of ideas or thoughts about how we become more inclusive in the way we design and deliver services and support change so that we genuinely get different people around the around the table and it isn't just the the sort of usual suspects if I can put it in those terms. Yeah I mean I think I think there are lots of examples of different ways of doing it and I think there's room for all of them. Um, I think the government's language of co-production is really important um, and that goes just as much for producing policy as it does for producing a public service or um, a community centre at, at the most sort of micro level. Um, and we need to make it the way we do business, not something which is brought in on special occasions or for particular um, types of projects. Um, I also um, think that, uh, that there's more we can do to um, learn from the best use of social media. We know that social media can be very destructive. It can be an echo chamber that just reinforces people's prejudices or gives um, amplifies the things that go wrong at the expense of all the brilliant things that go right every day. Um, but I think there is room for us to be thinking on the back of what we've all learned over the last nine months of the pandemic, how we can bring people together virtually um, much more quickly with much less cost, including people whose voices weren't heard before, um, and, and making that just part of the way that 
that business has done. Um, and I think it has to happen all the way from things like the Scottish Social Security Commission um, and the way that users' voices have been built into developing that new social security world here in Scotland, um, down to um, the way that an individual person um, is in the driving seat when it comes to deciding what support they need to be able to stay at home in the face of um, physical disabilities, life-changing injuries, the things that come with age. We need to, to be building it in all the way through rather than it being something we do once and then tick as having, having been completed. I guess throughout your career, and but particularly as Auditor General, you've uh, sort of had a lot of experience of providing gu guidance or advice to government and speaking with ministers and, and senior policy officials. Um, looking back on the experience of the p pandemic thus far, um, what would be your sort of key bits of advice to, to sort of policymakers in terms of how they support active citizenship um, and uh, support inclusive public services in Scotland? I think, um, first of all, keep that purpose in mind. I genuinely think that the government's ambitions in this area are first class um, and the challenge is to make them a reality in everything we do every day. Um, look for the positives, look for the people who are already doing this um, and look for how you can support them, get the obstacles out of the way, tell their stories um, and then uh, look at all the resources we've got available to us. Yes, money will be tight, although we'll still be spending around £40 billion a year directly on public services in Scotland, but we have got people who want to do things differently professionals in public services, in communities around the country who've seen what they can do over the last nine months. We can make better use of digital. Um, we can draw in partners um, in the, the third sector and the social enterprises that are such a big part of Scotland. Um, so let's make the, the best use of all the resources we've got and not just the tax monies that we can raise each year. Well, that sounds a really positive note on which to end, sort of just reminding ourselves of all the capacity and capability there is um, in, within communities and all that we can do as individuals and collectively to, to support better outcomes. Caroline Gardner, thank you so much for sharing your experience and expertise around how we can use the learning from COVID to support inclusive public services and innovative thinking. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca.